It was about 29 years ago when a man by the name of Robert Fulgham wrote a book entitled, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. I'm sure that many of you have heard that book or or read some out of this book. And, And what he had basically done is he was reflecting and he thought, you know, all the lessons that I learned in when I was a child, these are those are the lessons that uh, the world would run and be a much better place if we just go back and do what we were taught in kindergarten. He made a statement in the beginning of the book or the introduction. He said, you know, wisdom, I thought, was on the top of the graduate school hill. I thought I could get my graduate degree and, and that's where wisdom resided. But he said, upon reflection, that's that's not it at all. Wisdom resided in the Sunday school sandbox and uh, the lessons that I learned when I was just a child. And so he gives some lessons and says, here are some of these things that we learned as a very young child that if we would just put into practice today, not only would they solve personal, you know, interrelational problems, but man, it would solve global problems between even countries. Here are some of the lessons share. Good advice. Play fair. Don't hit people. Makes good sense. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that don't belong to you. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Um, we'll agree with that. Take a nap every afternoon. I, I would like to try that sometime. And, and he goes on, and one of them is just hold hands and stick close together. Uh, we, we're taught those things when we're just a kid, you know, these, these simple rules of life, and, and we think that they apply to our children. But listen, if, if we would apply those to our our, our global affairs. Think of what a better world this would be. Well, I read that book a number of years ago, and, and I like the title, and I, I've got a list of things in my bucket of to-do list, my to-do list bu- uh, that's in my bucket. And, and one of those things is to write a, a book, and I've collected, I just need to get them written down, but I've collected a number of events that have happened through the years that I, I wanted to use this book kind of as a jumping off place because I, uh, of course, speaking in terms of hyperbole, I, I think that all I really need to know, I learned from my children. And I want to share some of those thoughts with you this morning. They're out of town today, so I thought, man, it's a great time to do this. They will not be here to be embarrassed or angry, uh, to, to get angry. So uh, I want to share something, but really it's not about them. This lesson is about God. Because what I learned from my children are reflections of God and help me to better understand God. Here's one thing that I want to drive home as we begin this lesson. As we grow up, as we're growing up, we expect to be students. We expect to have teachers. And, and then we reach a point where we're no longer going to school and, and we now think we're the teachers. And I just want to remind you to never stop being the student. There are people that we can learn from, even our children. And, and I want to encourage you, yes, be a teacher, but continue to be a student. 
and learn from, well, those that probably reflect God better than anybody in this world. Those who are innocent are our children. If you have your Bible, open it to Psalm 127. I want to remind you of what the Lord said there. Psalm 127, begin with me in verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. God says children are a blessing. Nothing you need to be ashamed of. The more you have, the happier you are, he says. Um, it's like a, a warrior that goes off to battle, and the more arrows you have, the better off you are. And he describes children in that way. There are things that uh, we can learn from our children. Now, I, I think that one of our problems in society, in general, is that it's become youth-driven. I am not an advocate that the, everything hinges on our young people. Um, there's something about authority and respect for the elderly that I think is often overlooked in our culture today. But I think it's important. Our young people need direction. Uh, the church needs to give them direction. Our homes need to give them direction and not let them be in the lead. We need to lead them. So whereas I know that I'm talking about young people today and lessons we learn from them, I am not, by doing that, discounting the importance of those who are older and the maturity and the wisdom that that they bring. Uh, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3 tells us on one occasion Jesus had some children that, that came to him. He was trying to teach. And I can just see the scene. I mean... You know, children get away from mom and dad. You've maybe seen children do that at church. A child might get loose, you know, and down the aisle he comes and up on the pulpit and then, oh, such embarrassment. You know, I have to go up and get my children. You, that's when, you know, you say to your spouse, you go get your child. Um, and, you know, the embarrassment with that. Well, these kids come to Jesus and the disciples get mad because they've interrupted Jesus, and, and they're angry. And Jesus says, listen, let the little children come to me. Um, and then he says, for as such is the kingdom of heaven. And that's the way we say it when we read Matthew chapter 18. It's, let the little children come to me. You know, we can hear that soft, gentle voice of Jesus saying, guys, lighten up. Let the kids come. But that's not the tone in which Jesus said that. Because when I read the parallel account in Mark chapter 10, when you get down to about verse 13 and 14, when the disciples were angry because these kids came to Jesus, you know what the text says? Jesus was angry with greatly displeased or had great indignation toward the disciples for trying to stop them. And I know that when I speak, I don't speak like this when I'm mad, you know, when I'm angry. And I can just hear Jesus letting them have it for their wrong-headed attitude toward these children. I hear a much sterner, a stiffer-jawed 
response to the disciples when they tried to stop those children. Children meant something to Jesus. And to try to push these children, who we must become like if we want to go to heaven, to try to push them away and keep them on the outskirts when they reflect God better than we reflect God. Jesus said, I'm not having anything to do with that. You let those children come to me. And so Jesus respects children. And so I want us to look at uh, a few things that I have learned from in my life that are just a sampling of things that help me to better understand life, better understand God. And I'll just do one for each child and uh, the lesson will be yours. But I learned responsibility from my children. Our oldest daughter, Kelly, was born on February the 29th. Uh, 1988. February 29th, if you think about it, that's leap year day. And I, I remember thinking, oh man, you know, we went to the hospital and, and the doctors, you know, I thought, 20, how's a kid going to go through life not having a birthday once but every four years? And I thought, this is the worst thing in the world that could ever happen. The 29th, are you kidding? The doctor assured us, no, 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 it'll be March the 1st before this child is is born. Don't worry about it. It's not going to... So I kind of... Well, the 29th was when that, that baby arrived. And I, I that bothered me for a little bit, but then I got to thinking as a father real quickly. And I thought, well, wait a second. Um, one birthday every four years... It's 1988. She'll be 16 and be allowed to get her driver's license in the year 2052. And I thought, this is going to be all right. I I can deal with this. I had all kind of plans that none of them worked out. But, um, But here's what did happen. She was born that evening. And, you know, we were calling people and taking care of things. And eventually it got in the middle of the night. It was like 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. And I left Charleston Medical Center in West Virginia. And uh, I said, I'm going to go home and, and get some sleep. So I, I left the hospital and I was driving home. I wasn't out of Charleston yet. And I'm telling you, I almost had to pull off the side of the road. I got shaky. I was just like overwhelmed. It was like somebody had just had this big heavy thing and they just lowered it down on my shoulders and let go and walked back. And I was crushing, being crushed under that load. I couldn't hurt. And what it was is responsibility. That's what hit me. And I don't know where it came from because it wasn't like I never thought about having a child. We had been planning this for some time and I had made preparations and what kind of things we're going to do and how we're going to do this and that. And we had talked about everything imaginable prior to that. But the child is here. Kelly is here. And now I have become responsible for soul. And I'm telling you, it just about was more than I could handle that night. I was like trying to get my arms around this and and I was overwhelmed by the depth of responsibility that I was taking on. Even though I knew I had it, it really hadn't registered with me. And I think uh, as I thought of that, I thought of passages such as Luke chapter 17. Jesus said, you know what? Offenses will come. 
People are going to make mistakes. But he said, woe unto him by whom they come. Why, it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be cast into the depths of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. That thought crossed my mind. I now am responsible for the training and the direction and and at least shooting this child in the right direction toward heaven. They may choose not to, but it's my responsibility to point them in the right direction. And man, I had better not mess up. There's a lot riding on this. Why it'd be better to be cast into the depths of the sea than to cause this one to stumble. Um... I soon found myself thinking about things like, um, what are we going to allow her to do? What are we not going to allow her to do? Where are we going to draw the lines? How are we going to set the limits? How how are we going to discipline? And and when we do discipline, how are we going to do that without disheartening them? Uh, As Paul talks about in Ephesians or Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21, all of these things were running, racing through my mind that night. Couldn't sleep a wink when I got home because I had responsibility placed on me. Now, we have, we do have responsibility. And as a parent, I learned that more so than before I had children, but whether you have children or not, think about your responsibility. Do we not all have a responsibility to each other? Do we not all have neighbors who are lost without God? Do we all have or do we not all have family members who maybe need instruction, correction, exhortation, encouragement? Um, we have responsibility to people in general, whether it be children or not. We do have responsibility. And as I become a child of God, I take on new responsibility. I take on responsibility of, of promoting the agenda of Jesus in this world. And, and I can't just sit back while the world is lost and not own any of that responsibility. I'm answerable for somebody to somebody. I I learned that probably the most in a single night in my life when our first child was born. Here's a second thing I learned from my children. I learned that the right thing isn't always the easy thing. Easy thing. When Michael was born, he was about two years old when this event occurred. We'd have gone to my mom and dad's house. My sister had a dog, and uh, we sent the children downstairs to eat. I think it may have been Thanksgiving or something along that line. All the kids were downstairs, and, and we were having a meal upstairs, and I heard Michael crying. And I went to the, the stairs, and he's coming up the steps, and just blood all over his face. And when we finally got him cleaned up, we saw he had been cut all all the way across the bridge of his nose. He had tried to take the bone from my sister's dog, and my sister's dog bit him in the nose. And uh, it was a bad bite. And so we said, we got to go to the emergency room. And so we went over to the emergency room. The doctor looked at it and said, well, he's going to have to have stitches. 
And so Kim and I got into this, you, you go back with them. No, you go back with them. I don't want to go back. You go back with them. And, and I eventually lost, but I, I went back, I went back and we're, I was sitting in this room. Have you ever, how do you give stitches to a two-year-old child? You have any idea? I, I didn't, but I do now. I mean, who's going to sit still while you sew their, what, your nose? Here's what they do. They wrap you up like a, a burrito. You know, they, they laid a, a sheet down and then just rolled him in it till he was just tight, you know, like a mummy. And he couldn't move. And then a nurse just held his head as the doctor, well, they gave that shot to numb him first. And they shoot you right in, you know, the spot. And boy, when they did that, he his eyes shot to me. I was standing right there and it was like, eyes of help you know what are you doing we're, we're in this room they're hurting me help me I, I felt terrible I knew what was being done needed to be done but to stand there and to look him in the eyes and to see that take place that was about more than I could deal with um, which set me to thinking how often must God in heaven look down and hurt for us, but allow it to happen? I, I can't think of uh, you know this situation without thinking of Jesus himself. Jesus cries out to God in the garden and says, Lord, if, it be, if you be willing, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go through this. Remove this from me. And I know that God the Father would have removed that in a heartbeat if it weren't necessary. But he allowed, made Jesus to go through that because it was best. Um, that's a lesson I need to learn. Sometimes um, God allows me to experience things that are hurtful. But it doesn't mean he doesn't love us. How many times through the years have I heard somebody endure some hard thing and then they, they have uh, accusations to hurl against God and they've misunderstood. Oh, you have so misunderstood God. The eyes of Michael when he laid there on that table looking at me like help. He didn't understand how I really felt. And nor do we when we falsely and, and rashly accuse God of not caring. I know in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, Jesus on that Sermon on the Mount said, You know what? Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. Ask and it will be given to you. But then he prefaces it all by saying, you know, well, yeah, if you seek, you will find. And if you knock, the door will be open. And if you ask, it will be granted. But understand this, God is a good God. And he's not going to give you something that's not good for you. We who are evil, you know, we're imperfect parents, but we know enough that I, if my son asked me for, I wouldn't give him something bad. I wouldn't hurt him. And if we being evil know how to treat our children, how much more would a holy and good God treat us? So yeah, there are times when we may want something and we may be really disappointed because we don't get it, but it doesn't mean God doesn't care and he doesn't hear. 
What it does mean is he loves you. And he loves you enough to know what's best for you. And, and sometimes to experience the best, we have to suffer some pain. I learned that from being a parent. It's helped me to understand God better. It's helped me to understand what I would perceive as unanswered prayers better. Because my mind goes back to that emergency room. And I understand better. Here's a third lesson that I learned from my children. And it's this, that sorrow and separation... uh, Well, I learned the joy of sorrow and the the pain of separation. Um, I still didn't say that right, did I? Uh, The sorrow of separation. Here's what, uh, what happened. We, we would, didn't get to see my mom and dad very often. They, they lived about eight hours away and, uh, we would go home uh, periodically and, and the kids loved going to the grandparents. You know, they wanted, because they were treated royally and, uh, had all the things and the attention and the love that shared with them. And so it, we, we would be two or three days there and it would be time to come home. And I remember on one occasion in particular, Matthew was in the car just a little boy at the time. And we were pulling off. My mom and dad were on the porch waving goodbye. And Matthew said, every time we leave grandma and granddad's house, I get this funny feeling in my stomach. And he said, and there's something in my throat I can't swallow. What, what is that? You know, what he's talking about. You know how you get a lump in your throat. Uh, he didn't know how to express that. But he was sad. Because of separation. And, and he had probably as a three-year-old was trying to explain to us, you know, I can't swallow. And, and it was the, the lump that he had in his throat because of the separation, the sorrow that he was experiencing. I get that. I understood it and, and I appreciated it when I heard him express it as a child. But I also can't help but think of God. You don't think that there's sorrow when we become separated from God? He wants our fellowship. The, the passage in, in the book of Hebrews where Jesus, he, he endured the cross, he suffered the shame, and it says, for those things that are set before him. Well, what is it that's set before Jesus that would cause him to, to endure the cross, to despise the shame, and to go through all that? I mean, he had everything. Well, almost, he didn't have you. And that's what was said. Listen, Jesus endured all that because he wanted to be with you. Fellowship was broken, Isaiah 55, because of our sins. And the only thing that he didn't have that he still wanted was you and fellowship with you. And so he endured the cross for that. God understands the sorrow of separation. But he also understands the joy of reunion. And I can't help but think of uh, Roman, or like Revelation 21 and verse 4. Um, that, that heavenly realm is described and uh, every tear shall be wiped away. There'll be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. Those old things are passed away and, and now everything's it's new. It's better. 
the things that break our heart in this life, we, we won't have to deal with anymore. David in, in 2 Samuel, when David's son dies, they hated to tell him. Because boy, was he, he, he was sad. He was praying. He was fasting. And, and they were, he was so touched by his sick son that when his son finally died, the, the guys didn't want to come in and tell him. They didn't know what would happen. So they finally do. David, I hate to tell you, your son, he just died. And David got up and he washed himself. He put on new clothes and he looked totally together. And they couldn't understand it. And they said, well, wait a second. Before, while he was still alive, you were, oh, you were a mess. You were mourning. And now he's dead and you're acting like everything's okay. And David simply said in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 23, I can't bring him back to me, but I can go to where he is. The sorrow of separation is only matched by the joy of reunion. Man, how many people in your lives have passed away that you loved and you long to see again? That day's coming. I, there was a, an elderly lady in, in Kentucky that I, she would tease me mercilessly. And it was that direction. She teased me mercilessly. And um, one day after she had really put me through it, I, she was in she was in her mid nineties, and I said to her, um, "You know, living as old as you've lived uh, really does have some drawbacks." And she said, "Well, what do you mean?" I said, "Well, all your friends have already died, and they probably don't think you're going to make it. Uh, that, that maybe you went the other direction because you're not there with them." And and uh, you know that that idea of reunion, though, it, that, that's a great thought. To be able to be with people that you love, people that you miss terribly now, but back together then. As hard as those separations were that I saw in my children, I also got to see the joy of the reunion when we first arrived and there's the hugging and the kissing and all those kind of things. I learned that from my children. And then one final thought, and I'll leave this with you, with Anne Marie. I learned the joy and the pain of fatherhood. When babies are like this big, they belong to Kim. Um, she's good at that. Um, I, I was always, it was just too small. You know, but but when they start to like get a little older and know what's going on and and uh, you know respond to you, that that's kind of when I took over, you know. And I, I'd get in there. And with all of my children, we had this thing like, who's going to say? Is she going to say daddy first or mama first? All of them said daddy first, dada. Um, she says it's a phonetic thing. It's just easier for them to pronounce. I don't buy that. I, I think there's something in, you know, I think it's, in fact, one time I was preaching, we, I had talked about this and I was in the middle of my sermon and Matthew was just, oh, I don't know, just months old. And he saw me and he said, Dada. And I had to stop my sermon right there on the, I said, did you hear that? Um, because he called my name and 
But Anne-Marie, you know, it's that, there's that time when there's not expressions. They're just existing, feed me, change me, keep me warm, that kind of thing. There was then the day when I was holding her and I was doing all that goofy talk that you do to babies. And she smiled. You know, that smile broke out. And, and it, there was no physiological reason for that. It was really happiness. She smiled at me and I grabbed my camera and I took another picture when she smiled again. And I was like, yeah, she responded to me. You know, she smiled at me. And from that, I thought of how must God feel in heaven when we respond to him? He speaks to us. He encourages us. He, he tries to communicate with us. And then we do the right thing. You know, we, we think the right thing. We say the right thing. We obey the gospel and, and we surrender our lives to him. We respond to him positively. Don't you know that has the same effect on God that it does on us? When my daughter looked at me and smiled a positive response, I was thrilled with that. And let's see, what was it that Jesus said in Luke 15? There's more joy in the presence of angels. And maybe not just by the angels, but in the presence of angels. God is in their presence I don't know if that's just saying that the angels were really happy. I tend to think that it's saying that God, who's in the presence of angels, is really happy when one sinner repents. When we respond favorably to God, we bring joy to God's life. But when we don't, we bring sorrow. And I've been a parent long enough to know the sorrow that comes from children that, uh, you know, when they, when they don't respond as you wish to. And again, I can't help but think of God. What must God think and how must he feel when he sees this? Uh, when he looks at my rebellion and my sinfulness. We can learn from our kids. They're a gift from God. And while I'm to be their teacher and to help guide them and direct them in a way that will lead them to heaven, don't, folks, don't forget to be the student. These children that are given to our trust and our care come from God. And they have stamped upon them His image. And they're pure. They're innocent. They, more like any of the rest of us, are a reflection of God because of their purity. Let's learn from them. Um, as I said, all I really need to know in life, I think I could sum up by saying, I, I learned those things from my kids. I say that, you know, with hyperbole in mind. But um, what I do learn about from my children and what my children have taught me most and most importantly is they've taught me about God. I understand God better now as a parent than I did before I was a parent. 
I understand the joys, the highs, and the lows maybe a little bit better than I did before. And so I want to encourage you not to just simply get caught up in being a teacher, but also to be a student. And I want you to remember your relationship to God is much like a child-father relationship. And if you haven't surrendered your life to Him yet, do you... Do you understand what joy it would bring him today? If you would surrender your own will and say, you know what, I'm going to be baptized into Christ this morning because that's what God wants me to do. And I want to give my life to him and live for him. I want to respond favorably toward my heavenly father. There will be joy in heaven over that decision. And and then live your life in faithfulness to him. And when you mess up, come back to him. And say you're sorry. You know, through the years, on a number of occasions, I have gone back to my mom and dad, or either writing them a note or talking to them on the phone or something, and I have said, I am sorry. You know, I'm sorry for some of the things that I put you all through. And and I just want you to know. And again, I, I maybe appreciate that a little bit more when I see things happening you know, wow, that, that was really, well, I did that to my mom and dad too. Um, I'm sorry. Maybe that's you this morning. God, I'm sorry. I never really considered what it was like, but I am a child of yours, and you must feel much like I would feel if my children were doing this. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? God will. If you pray and seek his forgiveness, and we'll pray with you this morning. If you need to respond, we invite you to come as we stand together and sing.